Welcome, everybody, to another Wednesday night edition here on The Rock Pile. Make sure to tune in every Wednesday night at 8 o'clock, where I talk to small business owners, entrepreneurs, coaches, and athletes, and many more. Tonight's a special guest. Not only is he a RFA alum, he's also a former um, RFA basketball, former RFA football. He's the current head football coach at Lake Forest College, friend of mine, and I am happy to have him on here tonight. I'm glad he made the time to come on. It means a lot to me. Um, if you have any questions for Coach Catanzaro, please make sure you put them in the comment box. If you're watching on YouTube, just make sure you hit the subscribe button. Make sure you click the bell for all, and you can catch all the former shows uh, of mine anytime I go live. So without further ado, let's bring Coach Catanzaro into the program now. He'll be on here in a second. There's Coach. How are you, Coach? Good, Rock. How you doing, man? I'm doing good, man. Good to have you on here. I'm excited to um, – glad you made the time for me tonight. Uh, I appreciate it, man. We're family, so you know it's good. Well, you still – I was telling you before we came on, you still look like you can play. Yeah, different position nowadays, or maybe the same <laughs> just a little bit bigger body. I don't know. So I uh, definitely don't have the speed I once had, but I, I got a little bit more knowledge, so maybe that will make up for it. No, I hear it. And listen, man, you've, you've done a lot since high school and uh, since uh, – being at RFA, so I want to kind of start a little bit with um, the high school career. Um, for many of the listeners and viewers tonight, the local here all know who you are. But talk to us a little bit about your career when you were in high school. Yeah, man. I mean, where was a better place to grow up in the 90s than than Rome, New York, and play for some of the legendary coaches? Uh, you know, I, I grew up about two blocks from Rome Free Academy High School, the old high school. And so in the summers, it was, you know, being in Coach, Coach Evans's basketball camp in the morning there and then get into the weight room with Coach Mize in the afternoon. And then as you got into high school, you got to actually work for those guys and get paid to be there instead of instead of having to pay to be there. <laughs> and uh, that was that was kind of my life, man, there between all the, the neighborhood parks, whether it was Franklin Field or Geyer, that was that's what we did all summer and just played every sport. And then when you got into coaching or, you know, getting into play for the organized ball, um, I mean, Rome just had a great number of coaches, whether it was, you know, Mike Warwick, who was kind of the – the feeder program at Stroud, bringing everybody up, and, and Coach DeCoste and Coach Ferrucci at the freshman level. Um, and you got great basketball coaches, and those were kind of my two sports were football and basketball. And I think that both Coach Evans and Coach Baldwin will tell you I was more of a football player on the basketball court than I was a basketball finesse player or anything like that. Um, but, I mean, I was lucky, man. Had great coaches that, uh, that made me fall in love with the game for the right reasons. And, and it was never to get your name in the paper, and it was never to, to do anything that, but it was to, to just win um, and, and have fun and, and be part of a, a team and a family environment within the locker room that was better than, you know, what some guys had at their own house. I mean, I was fortunate. I had a great house, but there were guys on our team that, you know, their best family environment was there in that locker room with, you know, Coach Mize or Coach, you know, Coach Hope coming to grab them by the ear and, and lift them up and make them feel better about life. And, that thing never left me. And, um, you know, so RFA was a ton of fun for me. I, I'm one of those guys that still thinks fondly back on it of like, you know, the guy, when I had my wedding, three of my high school teammates were up there, you know, as best men. And I got married late. I was almost 30 when I got married. So those guys were still super close to me. And, um, it was, it was special, man. So, you know, I always tell people and even my wife, when my wife moved here with me from, uh, Ohio, she's from Oregon. She didn't really know how big, you know, sports were in, in this area. And a buddy of mine that does the radio show with me, Pete Pagliaro, was completely in awe 
of the coaches that, you know, we were fortunate enough. I mean, you and I were fortunate enough to, to grow up with. And not saying it's not like that now, but we were just so blessed in Rome to have not, not just great coaches, but great coaches at the, at the youth levels that a lot of the programs don't have. And that says a lot. That's special. Absolutely. I mean, and I think both of you and I got coached by our dads in the youth level too. That yeah. that hurt us at all. We got we got coached at home much, as much as we got coached <laughs> in practice. Um, but no, I mean, those feeder programs and, and the way that everything was the same, Rome was was ahead of their time in the way that, you know, I remember now 42 rip in seventh grade was still 42 rip <laughs> at high school level. I mean, that it never changed. And we were there at a time, you know, and what's probably the most different at Rome with the coaches is, you know, Coach Evans had been there for 30 years. Coach Bruce as the defensive coordinator and had, you know, had been a head coach there. And Coach Hope, I mean, those guys were there for 30 plus years together. And that consistency, even at the junior high levels, was there as well. And, and you just had that, you, you could tell that those guys were, they were as committed to each other and there wasn't egos getting in the way of anything. And, you know, you had guys who, dads had played for those guys at some yeah. point the the legend of those guys and the impact was just it, i don't know there's no way to there's no way to put into words how much of an impact some of those coaches had on generations of romans not just you know certain guys and and i i caught a piece of that when i when i took over as the head coach at sequoia my first year i'll never forget it you know when you get up in front of the team you talk about winning you talk about family you talk about tradition you know, a lot of the schools in this area weren't, again, they weren't blessed. They weren't fortunate enough. Friday nights was it. Friday nights in Rome, the town shut down. I mean, I keep telling people the crowds that we had, I'll never forget it, the Henniger game that we had. It was standing room only. You couldn't get a seat inside the stadium unless you got there at 4 o'clock like my grandparents would yep. get there at 4.30, 5 o'clock. The stadium was packed. We played in front of thousands at RFA. Yep. Rock, I, I've been at the collegiate level for, I don't know, 20 years now as a coach at the Division II and Division III level, and I've yet, even at Eastern Kentucky University, when we went there for a money game, have not played in a crowd like what we played in front of in Rome on Friday nights. And uh, it's, you know, that's the part that I think that is, you know, it's hard to sell the kids and explain to them, but, I mean, it was it was truly different and special when we, when we played there. So there's a lot of high schools, that, you know, that would love to have had or still would love to have what we had during the nineties there. You know what I think is tough too? And I've, I've shared this with my dad. I think my dad, cause my dad's still coached after I graduated at a couple different high schools, smaller high schools. And then he helped me out. And I always say that, you know, the, the game of football is the game of football. Nowadays, when you and I played, it was, let's get in the eye formation. And it was 42, <laughs> 43 rip once in a while I'd run an option and, you know, we run it. We probably threw the ball maybe eight or nine times because we didn't have to. Yeah. When you look at the high school game now, we'll get into the college game, and I'll, I'll talk to you a little bit about that. Now you got the spread offense. You got so many different styles. That years ago, do you, do you think that we could have still had the success we had if we would have ran what they run in today's game with the players and athletes we had? Uh, I'll tell you what. I think that offensively, we would have had the athletes to do it. Now yeah. it would have had to change how we prepared and things like that, but we we built our whole program at RFA on running the football. When you think of the linemen that we had come through there, the the Vinnie Cards, the Jim yeah. Hop, you know, um, even our I mean, you had tight ends like Kirk Wild who were 6'4", 200 and whatever pounds and freakishly athletic. You had you know Myslinski's coming through there. We our program was built on running the football, and at that time we we were so darn good at it that. 
why would you do the, all the other stuff? And right. now everybody knows how to run the spread. Like, the, you know, throwing the football has become the norm. But when you're in warmer weather climates like you see, it's a lot easier to get those quarterbacks and receivers developed because you can do seven-on-seven year-round. We still allowed our guys to play multiple sports. And what you're seeing now is the, the sports specialization is making the passing game better because it is something you can do year-round rather than, you know, playing football the way we did where you're running, you know, like you said, a little bit of option, a little bit of yep. power football. You can't do that year-round. Any That's not allowed. You don't have pads on to develop that. So if you can steal some quick points in the passing game and run all these seven-on-seven tournaments and, you know, skirt the rules a little bit, that's I think that's the only reason why people are doing that more. How about coaches-wise? You think, you know, Coach Bruce and Coach Hoke and Coach Mize, Coach Ryan, I mean, those guys were – ahead of the game they were ahead of the other coaches we and Tim we won games in warm-ups teams never want to play us we you know I always say all the time here I never lost a game on that field from yep. from a from a ninth grader on varsity all the way through I never lost a home football game but do you think like the coach hoaks now the coach Bruce's do you think they could have adapted to the game now the kids now the parents how crazy they are now you think they could have adapted no doubt they would have continued to adapt and they would have figured they would have always stayed ahead of the game. They would have always, they were ahead at their time and they would have had the decisiveness and the foresight to keep being ahead of the time. And it may not have been going to, you know, a four wide spread attack. They might have said, you know what, we're going to, we're going to actually invest deeper into the triple option like the military academies do. Yep. And say, this is who we are. And, you know, when Paul Johnson went to Georgia tech, he showed that you could run the triple option in the ACC and win a lot of football games with maybe some lesser speed and talent kids. Um, you know, even when we were there, the one of the teams that was most innovative was Henniger. They, yeah. I mean, I don't know if you remember your your sophomore year, but they start running single wing, but everybody now would call that the Wildcat, to mm -hmm. Marquise Walker, where they mm -hmm. would just snap to him and say, you're short a hat in the box because you got to cover everybody else. Go find a way to tackle him. And, I mean, it, it was single wing football reinvented as the Wildcat, and again, I think Hoke, Mize, all those guys, they were they were so far ahead of their curve then that they would have just continued to be that gap. Whatever, whatever that gap was, they would have kept that. And I want to say that that Henniger game, I want to say it was my sophomore year. I think we were losing at halftime. I think we were losing at halftime, and which I think was one of the only games, if I remember, in the four years that I played, we were ever well, down at halftime. Talking about the one at the dome. This is the one at the carrier dome. Oh, you're talking about that one. I'm talking the yeah. one at home. Yeah, no, this is the one of the Carrier Dome because I, I I think I missed – I was you were a freshman when I was a senior, I think, yep. or maybe a sophomore. So uh, the one in the Carrier Dome, it was – they started going direct snap to Walker because they weren't able to run their normal offense against us and, and get what they needed. And uh, they they used that was, – that was their innovation and wrinkle. But, again, I think that, you know, Coach Bruce makes a quick adjustment on the side and puts us into – I think we called it the night defense back then yeah. – it was a guy like a five three with a spy in the middle, and just said, yeah. "That guy goes, you go." And all of a sudden, they, that wasn't working anymore for him. What were some of your most memorable football moments that you remember? Gosh, selfishly, um, so I, I got to go personal. Selfish, the first two, and uh, I know that if Nick Rizzo tunes in, he'll he'll be laughing, or Kelly Hope will will laugh about this one. Uh, as a junior, um, I was the backup center. I was playing more in defense, but I was the backup center and our starting center. Um, Jim Donovan got hurt in practice yeah. before we played. Um, I think it was I think it was Whitesboro or CNS. It was one of those two guys in the Carrier Dome, 
And um, or no, we had to win the game to get to the Carrier Dome. Yeah, we played CNS in the dome. Yeah, so we had whoever had to play the week before the dome. Jim gets hurt in practice, and all of a sudden, I've got to go and be the the starting center. I'm about as nervous as can be. And again, at that time, I'm about 175 pounds playing with two Division One offensive linemen at the tackle spots, and uh, Jamie Harper and Vinnie Card. And then you've got um, you know, a couple of really good guards and, you know, young guys didn't play back then a whole lot. And so I'm playing and I remember in the pregame, I got my old Walkman on with a, a just a, a cassette single that had like I the tiger on one side and welcome to the jungle on the other side. And I, it didn't flip on its own. So you literally had to take the tape out and put it in. And I remember Kelly Hope picking on me, calling me flip for like five days because all I had done was flip the tape over and over. And she was just listening <laughs> to the tape flip. So that's one of them. Um, you know, playing in the Carrier Dome was a, a definitely a cool, cool experience. We did that quite a bit. Um, you know, I had a 68-yard fumble return for a touchdown against uh, Central Square. They got called back because there was like a personal foul on one of our guys, and I remember never being, you know, more exhausted than that. <laughs> um, and, and then the really funny one, I'll give you a funny one, was I think it was my junior year of basketball. Co- Coach Baldwin probably still shakes his head at this one is, we're playing somewhere. I don't know if it's Baldwinsville or somewhere far away. And I'm, I'm like, these rims are low. They're, they're definitely low, Coach. There's no doubt that these rim, these rims aren't ten foot. And he's just looking at me like I'm nuts. He's like, look, you don't even play a lot. You don't need to worry about. It. <laughs> well, well, watch this. And I run down and I jump up and I hang on the rim. And I get a technical foul before the game from the officials because they thought I dunked the ball. And uh, you weren't allowed to do that back then. So yeah. I get a tech before the game and I'm like, I told you, I, you know, I can't touch the rim. And uh, that was my my big, big funny moment, I guess, with him. So a little bit of humbling. You know, I'll never forget my uh, my ninth grade year. I'll never forget the night before it was equipment handouts. My dad was a JV coach, and my dad and I are going through, like, signals. My dad's going through, you know, signals for offense because I was going to play JVs. And I'll never forget, I slept in, and I get a phone call, and it was Coach Hoke. I was talking to my dad, and he says, put your son on the phone. I get on the phone. He goes, where are you? I said, Coach, I'm sleeping. I don't have to be there until one, two o'clock. He goes, get your butt down here. Now you got to get equipment. You're coming on varsity. And I'll never forget my first day I walked onto the field with everybody. And then, like you said, you're talking Jamie Harper, Vinnie Carr, Tommy Haddad, all these big guys. And I'm like, here I am, 140, 150 pounds. I was scared shitless out of my mind. And um, But I'll tell you what, it was, it was such a good group of guys. And, Kat, you're one of the only ones that I will say this. You took me under your wing as an older guy that I looked up to that uh, here's this little skinny ninth grader on varsity, not knowing if I'm going to play. And you kind of took me under your wing the entire time. Cause I was the second string quarterback and you were the second string center. I yep. played, I, I played free safety my first few years. Um, but it, it was awesome. Just a group of guys, but you know, one of the things, let's go to the basketball piece and we'll, we'll come back. And then I want to get into the college piece with you. You know, I always tell people we weren't the greatest basketball. We didn't have, the six six, the six seven kids. You were six foot, if that. You were our starting center. But I'll yep. tell you, I think we had more fun playing basketball and all that than we did football. We had a lot of good times football. We had some good times hoop wise. Absolutely, and you know one of the things that I always laugh about is I got to play on a really good basketball team. My junior year, we had you know Rondell Williams and Brad Nelson. Yep. Uh, you know Larry McCray was the guy that kind of did for me in basketball what you know you just said I did for you in football. He took me under his wings. He got hurt and was really helping me try to figure out basketball because, to be honest with you, I was not a good basketball player. And I was just a 
I was an athlete that tried hard and I was five good fouls and a couple of rebounds. And that was, that was my specialty. And, um, but I, you're right. I mean, being on the bus and I, I always laughed about the basketball bus versus the football bus. Like the, it's two different sports and the mentality on the buses going to games and coming back from games, totally different environment. Like you're on a football bus and you're going to a game. It's like silent guys are, there's no talking, there's no mm -hmm. laughing. There's no, I mean, you are ingrained to just focus as hard as you can. And then in basketball, I mean, somebody's telling jokes. You got cheerleaders on the same bus. There's all kinds of stuff that's like, it's a totally different environment. Um, but you're right. We weren't very good in basketball, but we did have fun. And, you know, there was there were certain refs that I, I knew what I could get away with. And, you know, could I set a good pick here for you or not a good pick? And, um, no, I mean, it was basketball. Again, we weren't super talented, but we did have fun. And I'll tell you what, it's probably, you know, Coach Baldwin's influence for me is one that can never be understated because he took me to a basketball camp uh, right before my senior year of high school up at Camp of the Woods in Speculator, New York. And it's where I heard about Greenville College for the first time, which is where I ended up going to school. I mean, I ended up going 15 hours away from Rome to go to school because I heard about this college at this basketball camp. And the people that told me about it just once I visited, I knew it was the right spot. And, and what that has done for my life since then, I mean, I could have went to Cortland or Ithaca or, you know, any of the, the traditional Rome haunts where the football players went. And I got such a different experience. And, um, you know, that camp. The, it was one of the more transformational camps I've ever been to as part of the FCA group, and it, it was really, really important. So. And Coach Baldwin had it tough, too. I mean, you know, he had, Coach Baldwin had to come in and replace, you know, Coach Evans, which, you know, it's always so hard to replace a legendary coach that's been here for so long. And, listen, times were, were different when Coach Baldwin came in. I do remember that year, though, because I was a uh, – I think I was a freshman or 10th grader, and I think I got pulled up for the sectional game. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and, and you just mentioned Larry, Brad Nelson, and that, that was a good group. That was a really good group. Yeah. So coach, yeah. coach Baldwin had it tough. That was the last winning team for a long time. Yeah. Because we screwed it up the next year. And I think we had one win my, my senior year in basketball. So we went from being in the sectional game to, to one win. And, uh, but I'll tell you what, man, we, we still had a lot of fun. I mean, I'll, to this day, basketball was fun. You know, it was all, and even when I got to play in college, it was definitely Definitely for fun. And we got uh, Coach Vaccaro says, good to listen to days gone by and hear names of the past. Makes me feel proud that I was there. And, and Coach Vaccaro played a huge role um, yeah. there, Coach. Yeah. Good to hear from you. Coach Medesis, I knew he was going to throw this. He's my running partner on Saturday mornings. Don't forget, <laughs> Coach Catanzaro called that since he was better than Michigan a couple weeks ago. Coach Medesis, don't get me started, man. Come on. <laughs> But yeah, he was. You were right, Coach. Coach, what was um before we get into the college piece? I know most of the coaches you just mentioned obviously played a huge part for you. But when you look back on the high school career that you had and the friends and and the relationships, any any regrets from from your high school time? Could you have done uh, anything different? No regrets, man. I mean, I I was I was lucky and blessed to live where I lived, and I look at the the guys who were in the neighborhood, whether it was. I mean, there were guys in the neighborhood that didn't even play football and basketball that we were always around. I mean, there was, you know, Kevin Colmey was a, a baseball player and a wrestler that lived right down the street, and we would play tag, and we'd go to the front yard of the New York State School for the deaf, and, you know, it was it was true tackle football without pads on. 
And, uh, you know, those were the guys in that neighborhood. Todd Schober, who was a wrestler and a football player, was a guy that, you know, helped me get into wrestling and stuff like that early on that, that made me a better football player. There's there's nothing I would have changed about that experience. So, I mean, I'm not saying I want to go back and be a high school kid, you know, again, but it was it was pretty darn good, man. It was I got no regrets. So now here you are, you're the head coach of Lake Forest College. And, and a lot of people say, you know, you have an idea when you want to coach at, at a young age that you want to coach athletes. And it's not the easiest thing to do. I think it's one of the hardest things, if not the hardest thing to do. When did you have an idea that you wanted to get into coaching? I wasn't gonna. I was. I was gonna go and be a high school coach and teacher. Um, it's what I went to school for. I went to be a phys ed major. That was what I, what I decided I wanted to do. Um, I actually went as a business major and took like one stats class and was like, "Nah, I'm good. Uh, I don't need to do this anymore." So, um, had a you know. So I switched over to the education route. But then I did my student teaching and realized that I really didn't like being in the classroom every day. Um, and, and I don't know if it was the subject matter I was teaching or what, but I just. It wasn't my thing. It wasn't what I remembered high school education being like. And um, so I ended up getting out my senior year, college basketball season's ending. And I've had a talk with, you know, my dad and everybody else. What am I going to do? Because I don't know that I want to be a teacher anymore. And my high school or my college defensive coordinator um, offered me the chance to go be a, a graduate assistant and get my master's degree paid for. And it was going to be in human resources communication. Like I was going to go be a human HR director somewhere, do something like that, get out of it. And I fell in love with being a college coach. And so really it wasn't until I was at Glenville state, you know, being a graduate assistant that I was, it kind of confirmed up for me that that's what I was going to do. And then, so you spent three years there and then you spent what, three years at Wingate. Yeah. Three years at Wingate. And then um, out here to Lake Forest to be the defensive coordinator I uh, did that for three years and then have been the uh, the head coach for the last, I guess we'll call it 10 in a COVID year, whatever that, whatever that equals here, they're 12, 11 in a COVID year. So, so I had to look through, but you got some impressive numbers here. I'm not going to go through everything, but 2012 league title, three years as the defensive coordinator, two-time Liberty Mutual coach of the year finalist. You coach seven All-Americans. You're the current assistant director of athletics, second in program history and wins. 97 all academic honorees in the last four years. That that's a that's a lot of work put in. And and I gotta ask you this. Have you had the opportunities to go elsewhere? Yeah, there's been several opportunities. You know, if you have success, um, you get courted a little bit. And uh there have been a couple of opportunities through the years that have, have popped up, um, whether it was to go join somebody's staff at, at a higher level as a you know, a position coach or a coordinator or even a couple of head coaching jobs that popped up where, you know, people asked me to interview for it and, and that kind of thing. I mean, even at the Division three level, there's still search firms and all that kind of stuff. And so you hear from them from time to time if you fit the, the criteria that the school wants. And, um, you know, some of my exposure that I've received by being on the National Committee and on the AFCA Board of Trustees definitely probably helps me even more than anything I did on the field. Uh, but it's, uh, you know, there have been some opportunities, but there's no – no interest for me to, to really leave Lake Forest. I mean, I've, I've, they always tell you when you put your blood, blood, sweat and tears into the soil, you want to see the crops grow. And we, we've still got more here to, to accomplish. We haven't reached our goals yet. So I haven't reached my goals as a coach. That's for sure. You know, and we talk about it a lot on Saturday mornings, but you know, a coach that I played for Dave Clawson, who's the head coach at Wake Forest, you know, has been all over the place. And, you know, I always say that a lot of these coaches want to go from like a Mac school or take Wake Forest 
and maybe they jump to like an SEC school, um, a bigger program, which everybody, it's more money. And, and sometimes it's okay to be comfortable in a position where you're at, that it's not always about the money, it's being about the right fit. Is that really when you look at Lake Forest? Because you guys really in the past, you guys have had your ups and downs. It wasn't always, you know, eight and three, nine and two, 10 and two seasons. But is, is it sometimes more about the fit for the coach? It, it's the fit, not just for the coach, but maybe for the family too sometimes. And what you see at the, the Division One level is a lot of their wives don't work, you know, or they get really involved in community service or charities. My wife's a, a two-time state championship field hockey coach, is a, you know, head of lacrosse team that's won couple of sectional titles. And to be honest with you, as you know, geographically, there's not a lot of places where there's field hockey. Yeah. And uh, for her to have that opportunity to, to keep coaching and, and have her career too is, is really good. But the, the other thing that contributes for us is, um, you know, our daughter Katie is a special needs child. And so she has a super support staff here and support group in the, in the Lake Forest area. And, um, you know, for us, that's probably the, the number one deciding factor on anything we do moving forward. So to me, it's really – it is the right fit for us as a family in, in the career parts, the easy thing, because I still get to coach ball. It's no different on Saturdays. It's still 120 yards by 53 and a third. You got to have 11 guys do something in, in concert to go be successful. So for me, there, there's no reason to go to a bigger stage when I've got the biggest stage in the world every Saturday at one o'clock. You know, when you see a lot of pressure on a lot of these new college coaches nowadays, you get, you see them for a couple years, three years. If you don't win right out of the gate, you know, you don't see those, those coaches are getting fired. New new staffs come in. How much pressure is there at the Division three level where you're at? Is it is it any different? There's still pressure, but I think the pressure has a little bit more grace than maybe you would get at the Division one level because there's a little bit less eyes. You know, if we go four and six, I'm still meeting with the athletic director to talk about what are we going to do to fix it, you know, before next year and, and make sure that we don't repeat it. Um, now, do we have to go win a national championship? No, that's not. The The school kind of sets its own goals. And I think at the Division Three level, you know, every school sets their own goals of what they want to be. Do they want to be, you know, five and five and great, you know, win the conference? Do they want to be competitive in the conference? Do they want to be a national championship level team? I, I think that each college makes that decision based on what do they want to invest into their programs? What do they want to see? Every kid that goes through it in four years, what is the what is the takeaway that that kid has from their football experience, their sport experience, and uh, that's how they define success. It's not just the wins and losses or the the top twenty five rankings, things like that. You don't see many defensive coordinators as head coaches. That's a mistake. I I agree with you one hundred percent. What were some of the early challenges for you when you went from being a defensive coordinator to the head coach? Getting the offensive guys to know that I was their head coach that I wasn't just the defensive coordinator who now decided when timeouts were being made, um, you know, that I actually had, I was trying to change the program and personality wise, defensive coaches tend to be a little bit more fired up and uh, you know, maybe a little bit more yellers and screamers and offensive guys aren't, aren't always used to that. Um, and so I, I think that was kind of one of the things I had to kind of get a coach on my staff to handle the, the fiery emotional piece for the defensive guys so that I wasn't, it didn't seem like I was talking to just the defense and uh, having the offensive guys tune me out. So, but it probably took me, I tell everybody, I learned more in my first 18 months of being a head coach than I did in seven years of being an assistant coach. Um, I, I really learned all the things I didn't know that went on behind the scenes and the administrative stuff and uh, dealing with fundraising and alumni, not just B 
being the guy sitting in the in the basement trying to you know draw defensive ways to stop people. You know, it, it, I took a lot for that. So those are probably the biggest things for me, to be honest with you. Now, how about putting a staff together? What, what so, goes what goes into assembling a staff? Balance. You got to find balance in your staff. Um, I think that you have to have guys that you trust. So that, like, I, I don't look at our offensive game plan other than when the offensive coordinator brings it to me. Um, I'm not micromanaging him saying, no, I don't like this play or this play. It's a, okay, tell me why you like this. Okay, I can live with that. That's your reason. If your gut feels good, you've watched more of their defensive film than I have, I'm going to trust you to make those calls. Um, but you got to find guys that can balance you in recruiting. you got to find guys that can balance you, um, you know, schematically or reaching your players and, and just filling all the different roles within the program. Uh, that you're going to have. And I, I still to this day say the most important thing, and you hear this from, you know, Urban Meyer and some other people, the single most important person in our program is the strength coach because he's the guy that's with the players in the offseason while the coaches are going recruiting and doing that stuff. He's the day-to-day face. And so you got to have the right guy that not only is, is the right personality and is holding them to the same standards that you as a head coach want, but is developing them as, as in their strength and speed the way your program needs them to. It isn't just kind of caught into one thing that they're going to do. And that we've been very fortunate that way. Now, how about recruiting? You mentioned recruiting. I know that's obviously a huge part um, of coaching in college football, and a lot of schools are able to get different types of recruits. What type of kid do you look for? So they, they got to be talented football players. Uh, but we look for guys. There's, there's really three models of guys that fit us really well. There is the overachiever, the guy that, you know, I hate to say it, but he, he looks like me in high school. He's 40 pounds too light for the position he's playing, but he works hard and makes plays. And you're going to probably move that guy to a, posi- a new position just like I did. And can you, you know, forecast that guy to have success at a different position other than where they're at? Um, the second kind of guy is the the guy who maybe didn't get to start until his senior year. You know, is behind a couple of talented players, so he's a little bit under-recruited. You know, the, the Division ones and two schools don't know about him because he doesn't have game film yet. And you get in on him early because you, you're, again, trying to forecast that he's going to be a pretty good football player. Um, and then the third thing is, is the, the kid who wants something that we have, that we provide better than others, whether they're really into their finance major and they appreciate the internships that we have in Chicago, or, you know, do they have a hook of, you know, this kid's from Arizona, but his grandparents live 15 miles from our campus. Does that fit us better than you know, a, a local kid that just wants to go to a Big Ten school and we got to convince them otherwise. And, uh, you know, it's finding the guys who can appreciate the, the small college environment and that what we have is, um, though it, there are other small colleges, what we have is still unique. Now, how about for New York State? Have you, have you recruited any of our players this way? Yeah, we have. Actually, the guy who's uh, an assistant outside linebacker coach for the University of Buffalo is uh, one of our former wide receivers from uh, Kenmore Easton, uh, just outside Buffalo, he came to play for us. We've got some Massachusetts kids right now, but no, no New York kids on the team. We are recruiting a guy um, from the three one five. Actually, he's from uh, down in Hamilton, New York, and so okay. we, uh, if we can, if we can lock him up, that'll give us another one. And we do have a tight end from, uh, uh, not Sherburn. Um, God, he'll, he's going to kill me. But one of our tight ends is another three one five guy who's uh, who's playing for us. So um, we we did get a couple of guys, but. Yeah, we, we definitely recruit that way. We recruit nationally. You look at our roster, we're, you know, we're 30 miles north of Chicago, but we've got 36 guys from Arizona on our team. So we, we do recruit all over the country and try to find the right fits. Now, your conference, like many conferences, postponed football here in the fall, and we were talking before we came on, 
um, hopefully you guys are able to start in March. And I know you mentioned you're on the, the committee, but what, what's the latest as far as making sure that uh, you guys get a chance to have a season? So the most important thing for the, uh, the Division three schools is going to be accessibility to testing. Do they have access to testing that they're comfortable with? Um, our conference has laid out a model that if you don't follow these testing protocols, you're not going to be allowed to play any conference competitions. And so um, with the, the new saliva test that's come out by Abbott Laboratories um, and still having access to the PCR testing, I think we're in a good place. The, uh, the saliva test, you know, their, their reliability rate is okay right now, but I think they're refining that a little bit. And uh, we're pretty fortunate. We have a partnership with Abbott because they're in Lake Forest. And so the company that's making the saliva test is about six minutes from our front doors of our campus. And uh, so we're going to have access to those. And uh, we then have a partnership with uh, Rosalind Franklin Medical School, who's doing all of our PCR testing. So um, if your school can get the testing, I think they're going to be able to find a way to play whether it's uh, a full season or an abbreviated season, I, I think that's the big the big questions right now. Yeah, and I mean, you look at Division One, the big schools now, the Big Ten came back, the SEC, you know, you're starting to see some games get canceled. Um, and a lot of it's always about the money, right? Those big power fives, I mean, they can test, they have the money, they have the facilities there. Is that too what, what a lot of it comes down to, to some of these schools that can't participate is financially? Yeah, some of it's either the finances or just their geographic location. I mean, when you think of where some of the small D3 schools are, they're out in the middle of, of not in major metropolitan areas. And all those Division One schools have their own med schools, you know, for the most part on their campuses. Whereas if you're, uh, you know, let's use, um, you know, St. Lawrence up in Canton, you know, where are they going to go get their testing done? Do they have a local hospital? Do they have enough testing? to satisfy the local community as well as what the athletic programs are asking for. Um, I know that, you know, RIT, I'm sorry, RPI is doing weekly testing for their entire campus. So, I mean, if you, if you can get access to the testing, I think that you're going to be okay. If, if you can't get access to the testing with a, a fast turnaround, I think that's where the bigger, the bigger issue is. So I want to go back to the, co the college piece here for a minute with you. We talked a little bit about some of the high school coaches but talk to me a little bit about some of the college coaches that, uh, you know, you've looked up to that have helped you out, you know, in your journey to where you are today. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, uh, the two biggest ones, uh, I guess I'll give you three big ones. Um, Adam Gonzaga, who was my defensive coordinator at, at Greenville when I played, he's the guy that helped me get my first job. And really he helped me get my first two jobs. Um, he was the guy that was willing to put his, his name on me as a college football player to go be a GA with no coaching experience and get to coach a position that I didn't even play. I was coaching D line instead of coaching linebackers. And um, he helped me get that first job still to this day. I see him four times a year. We get together our families. And so he, he continues that mentorship. And then uh, Paul Schaffner, who's now the defensive coordinator at Colgate. Um, Paul was the head coach at Glenville when I got there um, was later the head coach at Buff state and is now the DC over at Colgate having tremendous success there. Mm -hmm. And he's a guy that, you know, even this summer when I came through New York, went out to see him and spend time with him and um, always a guy that I can call. He's a guy that really helped me uh, learn how to do the business of coaching, how to recruit, how to, you know, make a your own stamp on things and not have to just copy and regurgitate what you've heard somebody say at a clinic. You know, he, he really helped me dive a lot deeper into coaching. Um, and then Joe Reich, and I'm going to combine him with Rashawn Jordan, who are the, the head coach and the defensive coordinator at Wingate. Um, Joe taught me how to be calm 
like as a coach. Uh, and I hate to say that, but I, I mean, I literally think when I started coaching for four years straight, all I did was yell. And, and I thought that yelling was coaching and that yelling would give me credibility amongst the young players because it would show my passion and all that kind of stuff. And, and Joe was the guy who really helped me find my calm voice as a coach where, where I could talk to guys and, and just spend time with them that way. Um, there have been a number of Division One coaches and Division Two coaches who, through relationships, have helped me learn things and, and move up in the profession and solidify who I am and, and be a resource for me. But those guys are the ones who, on a daily basis, took the time to, to mentor and influence at different points in my life to make sure I was I was getting better. What are some of the big challenges at at Division Three schools? I mean, you got the players that you know everybody wants to play at the Ohio States, and I was going to say the Michigans, but right now I wouldn't want to play there. But the Penn States, you know, the big schools, you might not get the opportunity at Division One, the One AA, or even the Two. There's a lot of good Division Three football conferences across the country. But what are some of the challenges that you're up against? Uh, tuition. Uh, they got they have to pay to go to school instead of getting paid to go to school, and that's one of the the D one full scholarship mentality um, is one that, to be honest with you, I wish would disappear because you either love playing the sport or you don't. And I really believe that anybody who wants to play college football can find a place to be on the team. That may not mean that they're going to be the starter. It may not mean that. But there are there are programs through the junior college and postgrad level and D2 and D3 where you can find a home and find a, a role. But if all you want is to run out there and see 10,000 or 100,000 people in the stands, then you don't actually love football. You, you love being in the game and want you to just go be a fan and tailgate and do it that way. Um, so I think that's one of the challenges. They do have to pay a little bit to go to school. Um, the second thing is, is that, you know, for a lot of the guys who play in the Division Three level, football is not the end all. Football is really an opportunity um, to help them find their next career, where they're going to go with life. And they may not have known about a small private school or they've used it to get into a better school than what they could have based on their transcript. Um and then they play and they they just love the game of football. So they've used the, the sport of football to be their, their springboard to something else. Um, so, I mean, we got some pretty talented players. I've got a defensive tackle. We're a Division three school. But my backup nose guard was an Air Force Academy commitment. I mean, he literally had signed his papers to go to the Air Force Academy. And then something happened and he couldn't go. And so he's, he's here with us. You know, our, our All-American freshman was offered by 17 – scholarship level schools and he chose Lake Forest because it was the best fit for him and he was an All-American as a true freshman so we're, we're going to find some of that talented players um, that come to us just because we've, we've made connections with either the player or the coach or the family and they, they come here so I, I mean I love it so it's it helps us a lot. Now one of the things I saw too and I, I know you've done a lot over the years there but involving the players in the community talk to us a little bit about some of the involvement with your team. Yeah so we've got a couple of things that as a team we do every year um, Relay for Life is huge on our campus. It is not like anything at any other college campus in the, the country from what I've been able to see. Um, our Almost our entire campus, we'll have over a thousand people attend our Relay for Life. We're a 1,500 student campus. Um, but our team has raised about $10,000 each of the last eight, nine years to uh, fight cancer that way. Um, about 12 years ago, we started a, a thing called Heroes Day where we celebrate the military and um, the police and fire on our campus and we're our campus is about six miles away from great lakes naval station hmm. um, so a lot of people go to get their their uh os training and we started doing care package collections that we then send overseas to troops that are they're stationed abroad and uh it's it's really incredible we've probably sent over 300 350 
care packages at this point where we stack it full of all the stuff that they want, whether it's, you know, beef jerky or drink mixed stuff. I mean, we get requests for um, flavored toothpaste because the military only does like a baking soda baseline, you know, toothpaste. So sending all that stuff over to them to, to maybe put a smile on their face and they send us a picture or join us by Skype or something like that afterwards. Thank us. is It, it lets us have the game be a part of um, something much bigger than just being at our place. And, Kat, I want to go back high school with um, – Coach DeCola was actually kind enough um, – to be a sponsor tonight uh, for the show. And, um, you know, coach is, coach is doing a good job. He's putting the time in like all the coaches do. And I think us coaches never get enough credit for what it's a, it's a full-time job, high school and college. But what's some of the advice? Have, have you talked to him? Have you given him any advice, you know, through the ups and downs for him? Um, I've given him encouragement, maybe not advice. Um, you know, I, I did actually went out to one of their, uh, I guess it was their summer practice. They were they were like a summer workout, I guess, two years ago. I was in Rome and was driving past the, the stadium. And I saw kids out there, and I went out there with the coach. I actually got a, a nasty turf burn from that old turf that they had because mm -hmm. I, uh, I was trying to help them help a kid with a drill, and we got our feet tangled. So I, I felt the old burn. I was like, that's I don't I don't miss that burn. Um, but no, I mean he he's got a tough job, man. It's not it's not easy, and I think that at the lower levels, getting those feeder programs back in. I still to this day think that's what helped Rome um, become successful. Like like we talked earlier, 42 rip was always 42 rip. 31 dive was 31 dive and so on and so forth. And I, I'd be willing to bet you that if we brought in, you know, 10 guys who haven't been at RFA in, you know, 20 years, that we could line up and run most of those plays still. Yeah. And I think that simplicity um, and having it ingrained for a long time is, is really, really special. I mean – it's, it's a culture thing for your team. And that was, you know, Coach Campisi used to be at Henniger. I remember before our my senior year playing those guys in the Dome, he literally was quoting the papers that if the guys wearing the jerseys were at any other school, they'd be five and five. But because they're at RFA, they've learned how to win since the day they put on a helmet, and that's why they're in this game. And, and I still I still hate him to death. I still hate Henniger. I still hear the name. And I'll never forget on a side note. I think – well, you had to be on a basketball team. Do you remember when we went down to Henniger? I tell this story all the time. We were beating them at halftime. I know. And then we came out and we ended up losing by like 40 or 50. But we were beating them at halftime, and I think they were ranked in the top five in the state. They were. They were really, really good. They had uh, Dave Davis, who played football at Stanford. Yep. They had East. They had Damian – I think it was Damian Brown or Damian Mallory. That Mallory, was, uh, yep. Damian Mallory, who was, uh, you know, went to Rutgers. And then they had a basketball guy, Maurice. Oh, I wish I could remember names. Yeah, and then they had the, the kid that was a quarterback that played a Bucknell, and I actually kept in touch with him at Fordham. Gerald Thunderbird yep. was the quarterback. But, man, they were nasty in hoops. We had no business being on a court with them. No, we should have we joined, like, the TVL or something for a couple <laughs> of years instead of being in the OHSL, uh, that's, at least in basketball. You know what though, when you go when we look back at that now, that's been an interesting take here with a lot of fans, parents that'll say, Well, if RFA basketball and Coach Medesis and I talk about this all the time, and I give them shit for this all the time. A lot of teams say, Well, RFA started winning when they went into the Tri-Valley League in basketball. They didn't have to play the Syracuse schools. And and Nick's done a really good job because he'll go play those Syracuse schools in the non-conference, which is awesome. But when you look at the football piece, do you think teams just caught up to us? What I, I know the base left, we lost some kids, but I always say this and I argue this. Our best players were homegrown, 
Rome kids. We had the base kids. Don't get me wrong. We had the Wayne C's and the Tony Berries that were really good players. But for the most part, man, we were Rome kids, right? Yep. I think you just hit the nail on the head, though. Rome was generationally a returning – our parents, our two dads, were back in Rome. They grew up in Rome. They had their careers in that area. Look at our generation. The guys who would have came back, our group of guys that have kids, how many of us are back in Rome? I mean, you look at Facebook, and there's guys in Charlotte. There's guys in yep. Chicago. There's guys in Syracuse. The, the generation of guys, to our parents' credit and to our coaches' credit, our parents and coaches pushed us to go to college, where many of them didn't get a chance to do that. Right. And so they pushed us to go to college. We didn't all come back to Rome. And had we all come, had everybody come back to Rome, you would have that next generation of those Rome kids that it was ingrained in them to be RFA Black Knights. I mean, but those kids aren't back. So now you're having to start with a fresh, you know, canvas of players who don't have parents who believe. I mean, you, if you've ever seen, what is it, Friday Night Lights, the, the yeah. movie, not yeah. the TV show where like fourth generation playing in that program. Well, I was a third generation RFA grad. My grandfather, much like yours, played football at RFA. Yeah. Yeah. Our dad went to school there and played sports. So we were we were kind of ingrained in that and grew up with that. And now what is that age demographic? What is the population of those kids that have a, a tradition to Rome that is it, it means something to be from there? Um, and I, I think probably the other part that contributes, and maybe I'm wrong, but I would I'm speculating on this one having the field and the high school not connected, you know, not having them at the same location um, to me seems like a pretty big negative. I mean, I would hate for RFA stadium to ever go away, but the can, there is a convenience factor. Now it's really hard for some of those kids to get to stuff in the summer. Um, whereas at the high school is a little bit easier. And, and I don't know what the school is doing. Are they doing the zero block hour for the kids so they can all lift as a football team? Are they getting the, I mean, I go out to Arizona and most of those schools that are now in the top 25 in the country, like they have two and a half hours of football class a day. They have a weightlifting PE class and then a football class that leads into their practice where they're actually getting more time with their kids than I get with my college kids. Wow. And are the school districts out there willing to do that? Are they doing, you know, my wife's high school, they get, you know, 25 contact days um, for football with pads on in the summer to get their guys ready for the season. And so I think part of it is the geographic area being in New York State, there's more restrictions than there is nationally. but the, the schools around you, how are they how are they beating that? You know, and, and where is the population coming from of the kids that, that help do that? So you know what I think's hurt too? We got I don't know if, if you've seen it this way. Nice indoor sports complex called Accelerate Sports. It's a beautiful indoor place facility. You can do basketball all year. You can do my son's up there doing football drills. But I it almost seems like like when we played, I was football, basketball, and baseball. Mm-hmm. In the summer times I was at you know, go into RFA in the morning, get a workout in, get a lift in with Coach Mize, go do what I had to do. But now with these indoor places, if I want to play basketball, I can play basketball all year round. I can play baseball all year round. In a way, I almost think that these indoor places are hurting the three-sport athletes. You think? I agreed. I think the three-sport athlete is a, a – I hate to say it's a thing of the past, but it's a, it's a rarity now in a, in a big, big way. And it really forces kids to make decisions early because parents think that the scholarship's only going to come if they play that sport alone. Um, but their, their ceiling when they get to college, what coaches are realizing is 
the kids who only play one sport have no ceiling of improvement when they get there because they're already at their max ability. Right. Whereas if he plays three sports, once we get him to focus just on football in college, he's going to get that much better while he's while he's here. And um, you know, especially the track teams. I mean, heck, how many of us ran track even though we weren't track athletes? I mean, I was out there with Coach Mize running track, and I had no business being on a track team. Like, I mean, Coach Billy Mays was out there yelling at me and. You know, Coach Mize was yelling at me, but I got faster, and it helped me in football, and it helped me in basketball. So, I the 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 AAU programs and the travel club teams and all that. Everybody has to remember it costs money to do that, and so if you're paying money instead of being with your high school team, there is going to be less connection when you get out there on your on your high school team. And you know, even the stadium wise, I think we were the first turf stadium, you know, in yep. the area when we played, and. Uh, you know, we just put a new um, turf field down here. It's beautiful, by the way. It's top notch. But uh, back then, we were the stadium. I, you know, yep. everybody circled to play Rome because they wanted to come down, play under the lights, play in front of a lot of people. You know, now when you look at all the the high schools in the area, everybody's got turf. You know, those Syracuse schools, the CNSs, the ball—they're still the same teams they were years ago. A lot of them, you know, Baldwinsville coach Filippo there—he's still running the same. Same offense he did 20 years ago. Um, but a lot of these schools now, they all got the, the facilities that we had. Yeah, and you just got to use the facilities, though. You got to have – I mean, the weight room – we had a weight room before anybody else had a weight room. And, and, you know, being back in there, you know, a couple of years ago, our weight room at RFA now is – it's okay. It used to be the class of the, the area. Now it's, it's okay. They've got, they've got a couple racks, but – they don't have they don't have these dominant weight rooms, and the weight room not being at the school prevents kids from being able to use it. And, and so you got to have it where they can access it and use it as part of their PE curriculum and, and things like that, so that they're getting better during you know during the year. So but yeah, the facilities. I mean, the Arcaro Classic was always at Rome. Yeah, I, I don't know if it still is, but it was always at Rome. And I remember, you know, you'd play. In, I played in that game, and you know, you'd have the guys from like West Canada Valley and all these other places that would that would walk into that stadium in awe that that was a high school stadium. And well, now it hasn't changed really in 20 plus years, except for the, you know, the new turf now. And uh, what does it need to get to feel that way to make it special? We, uh, my senior year was the year that um, we didn't, we got beaten the dome to uh, to Henniger. And um, so we got a chance to play in the Carroll classic, but unfortunately because of the weather, we got a ton of snow. They canceled it. So we practiced a couple nights and I'll never forget this. I mean, we had probably 10 RFA guys. And you knew you knew how loud Tony Berry was and and yep. those guys. And I'll never forget, we get in a huddle on offense, and the, I don't even remember who the coach was at the time. He put all of us RFA guys on the first team, you know, offense. And and uh, Tony Berry looked at the coach and says, Coach, we know what plays we're running. You don't need to tell us the plays. We know what we're running. Every kid looked up to us like we were college kids. They're yep. like, holy shit, Rome kids are playing in this. They're never playing in this game. But we were like college kids. Yep. We were we were calling the defense my year. I mean, we we didn't run. I don't know what defense we were supposed to be running, but that's not what was getting, you know, once the signal came in, that's not what we ran. So I remember the guys from Camden and us were kind of kind of changing the play. And the Rome Catholic kids were all changing the plays to to get us some more productivity. So as there's no doubt. We had we had we were raised to be a higher level football player and that whether it was in the home or in the, at the stadium with the coaches, we, we were just treated differently and more was expected of us. I mean, we watched film. I mean, I remember going there and watching film on the old sheet that coach would you know drop down onto the wall and, 
Yeah. Other teams weren't watching film. You know, other teams weren't watching film. And that blew my mind when I went to college and, you know, 25 of the guys I played with on defense my freshman year hadn't watched film in high school. And I was just, it blew my mind. I was petrified on Saturday mornings to watch film when all the linemen sat by Coach Mice. And if there was a lineman that didn't sit by him, all oh, he'd let you hear all about it. Have you, you, twice. you keep in touch? Have you talked to Coach Hoke or Coach Mize or anybody? Uh, I occasionally I hear from either from them or through them, or I'll hear through, you know, Coach Mize's son. I'll talk to those guys a little bit. And, um, but haven't seen, haven't seen much, you know, it's unfortunate. I don't get to roam very often. Um, and when I do, I, you know, I've got grandparents there still. So I want, I spend time with them and, um, you know, for the, if I'm there for two to three days, it's not going to be, unfortunately, I don't, I don't get out very much. <laughs> Grandma, grandma's going to make sure I get fed pretty well. So, so Kat, the last thing I wanted to ask you for, for young coaches that are out there looking to get into the coaching field, what, what advice would you give them? First is you never know who you're meeting. And that guy that you're meeting at, that might be a GA somewhere three years from now might be the head coach at Oklahoma. <laughs> and I, I mean, there, there are guys that you, when you meet them, make, take a genuine interest in the relationship. Don't just look at the relationship of how they can help you. The second one is listen more than you talk, um, especially early on. You may have all these great ideas, but there, there is definitely a reason why everything in that current program is being done the way it is and understand that some things can be changed and other things can't focus on the ones you can, you can influence. And then just be real, be, be your true self. Don't change. Um, and I guess probably I was going to stop at three, but I got a fourth one that just popped into my head. Understand all the people in the program that make it tick that have nothing to do with coaching football. I mean, you think about Kelly Hoke over there and I mean, forget all the, the health that she created for us. She was the mind right check. I mean, you went to her, you got your eye black and your shoulder pads snapped, and then you were you were ready to go play. And there's people like Kelly and you know Coach Nemi that did all the equipment yeah. and, and all the different people. I mean, Art who used to run the chain gang, and I mean, all those people did the different things to make the program go. And if any one of those people would have been out of the circle, what would that have done to the coaches? And so, if you're a young coach appreciate the things that everybody around the program is doing to make it better um, and, and to make it run, even if you don't see it as a, well, that person doesn't make us win a game. Well, you know what? That person took two hours of the head coach's time off his plate by handling the equipment or handling the, you know, the water and the Gatorade. So he didn't have to do it. And, and I think just learning to appreciate that is, is something you, I learned it pretty early on, you know, when you saw how RFA went. All right, I got to ask this for Coach Medesis. We talk and argue every Saturday morning about Syracuse football. Does Coach Babers get a pass this year because of COVID, or is he done at the end of the year? I I would never wish anything bad on a coach's career at the college level in my world. But <laughs> uh, I'm hoping he gets a – he may get a pass um, because they did have a number of good players opt out. And, and I, I think that if you look at the players that they had that opted out for COVID – they would have made a difference. Um, but I do think that they, there are some things that I think they would even tell you they need to, they need to fix. And once they fix some of those things, maybe they can get back to, to being a little bit more competitive. How about my guy, Jim Harbaugh? Is he out? At, is he out at Michigan back to the I, NFL? I think there will be a, a mutual separation of some kind. I agree. Now, I, I think going to the NFL, I mean, I can think of a, a couple of, NFL teams that might uh, might be interested in them, but you better have the right quarterback and you better have the right GM 
to go with him. He has not earned the right to go be the head coach and GM, which is something I think he would want. And, uh, you know, as, as a long suffering Jets fan, um, I don't, you know, he would have handled timeouts and some situational football better, but I don't know that I want him making decisions on, on personnel. So I, I think that you, know, you got to be careful what you, what you wish for. He's the fourth winningest coach in NFL history, winning percentage wise. If I'm the New York Jets and I, or if I'm even this one, the Detroit Lions, I'm going after Jim Harbaugh. I wouldn't let him run the team as a GM, but I think he's an NFL guy. I think he belongs there. I, I'm a huge Jim guy. I thought when Michigan hired him, he he checked off every bullet point. Michigan man, played for Bo Schembechler, had success at Stanford. He's a, He was a winner everywhere he's been. I just can't believe this thing's went south so bad. He can't beat the big boys. And my wife's a Buckeye fan. Well, that, that that's a different issue, but – I think you also have to take into perspective how elite Ohio State football is right now. And that is a, a component that I know as a Michigan fan you don't want to have to own. But Mich- Ohio State hasn't been bad in a very long time. I mean, even you take the Jim Tressley years, rolling right into Urban Meyer, rolling right into Ryan Day. Like, forget who the head coaches are. They have been phenomenal football team for a very long time and they run their program in such a way that it's not the way that it was run in the eighties. How, when Bo Schembechler was there is run very differently to make sure that they are at the cutting edge. It's like we were talking about our coaches at RFA. They were always ahead of the curve. Michigan has tried to stay Michigan without changing. And now they're a very good eight and four, nine and three football team, but they're not going to beat those elite teams that you're talking about They're there. If they don't change some of the things that they do, um, develop quarterbacks from within instead of getting transfers, you know, and they might have to open up the offense a little bit. They they might need to see some things change that way to to get there. How about this one? And I got to let you go. Dino Babers leave. Herb Hand, the local guy, comes back as the head coach. And then for Michigan, I think they go Luke Fickle, the former Buckeye, comes in as the head coach. They're going to have to throw a boatload of money at Luke Fickle for him to go to Michigan. And I know they can do it. As for Coach Hand, um, I love Herb. I don't, and every coach wants to be a head coach at some point. But I'm not sure I'm leaving Texas as the, you know, in his role there to go to Syracuse unless there is an inside track that he knows about that's going to make them successful. I agree. One of the hard parts for Syracuse is you got to have a place to recruit, and your backyard's not going to produce enough Division One talent that you have to go convince kids to come up to the snow. And that was one of the things that Coach Pascaloni always did well. He was able to take those New Jersey kids. He was able to get the Philly kids. He was able to get the Florida kids. And then he would come out to the Midwest, and he would find you know the Donovan McNabs, and he would find some other guys. He, he kind of owned that Northeast Corridor, Maryland up. And the next coach that comes in, where are they going to find their niche market? And, and I don't know where that is for Syracuse. You know, you got to find your own market, but they've got to find a place to go and get that high-end top talent player. Well, Kat, man, I appreciate you coming on tonight. I love you, man. I've been following you. I'll continue to follow you. You've always been good to me. So uh, I appreciate tonight. It means a lot to have you on here tonight. Appreciate it, brother. Thanks for having me on. And uh, for all those Black Knight coaches out there, good luck. And, and when COVID kind of lifts, go get some wins because, uh, you know, all the fans out here, I'm part of – I'm definitely one of those fans. I love watching, checking the scores. And I know there's sometimes really tough years. And when I see Coach Medesis, you know, dropping 100-point games in basketball, I'm like – we never had a chance to do that, <laughs> but we weren't even going to get the green light. So uh, 
I love checking in on that and, and following. So I appreciate what you're doing, man. Good luck with the next uh, next batch of shows of the Rock Pile. All right, buddy. Take care. Have a good holiday. Keep in touch. Will do. Bye. That's awesome, man. Can't like I said, he took me under his wing um, when I got called up as a ninth grader on varsity. He uh, he stood by me the whole time, and uh, he's had a fantastic career. Um, and I know he's only going to continue to do good things and great to catch up with him. I am so excited. I'm going to, I'm going to do a tribute here. I, I wrote it by hand. I'm going to read it to you on Alex Trebek, but I, I'm so excited for next Wednesday night. I'm going to talk to Spiro Ditas, who, who broadcasts for the CBS network. Um, he's called Super Bowls. He's called Final Fours. Um, he's on NFL uh, network. He calls a lot of NFL games. He's a Fordham alum. I'm excited to talk to him next Wednesday night. So make sure to follow me across all social media platforms. Hit the subscribe button to follow me on YouTube. Special thanks tonight to uh, Coach Cat and Zero for coming on here tonight um, on the Rock Pile. We lost uh, Alex Trebek passed away this week, and I want to read you this so I don't leave anything out. Um, I'd like to pay tribute uh, to the late Alex Trebek. I want to thank him for coming into many living rooms all over the world, but I want to especially thank him for coming into both of my grandparents' houses growing up. He brought smiles, laughter, competition, but most of all, he brought families together. Growing up, we always watched Pat Sajak with Wheel of Fortune and, of course, uh, Jeopardy, and I always wanted to be the next game show host, and I remember all the game shows that we used to watch. And as a kid, when you were sick, staying home at my grandma's salon with my mom working in the back room, I was watching Bob Barker and The Price is Right, uh, you name it. Um, I always wanted to be a game show host. As we say goodbye to Alex Trebek, the show must go on. And in one of his last interviews, he told the producers to give him 30 seconds. And think about that, 30 seconds to fit 36 years um, of a game show is incredible. And I want to read this quote. He said, don't ask me who's going to replace me because I have no say whatsoever. But I'm sure if you give them the same love and respect that you've shown me, they will be a success and the show will continue to be a success. In one of his final words, he said, until we meet again, God bless you and goodbye. So for me, I want to say thank you to Alex Trebek. Give my love to my Aunt Teresa, my Grandma Sue, my Nana Minnie, my Grandpa Louie, my Grandpa Jerry, and thanks for bringing Jeopardy in, the, in my own personal family. And I'll leave you with three words, and it's three words for Jeopardy. And I'll see you guys next Wednesday night. Thanks for tuning in. Is This is Jeopardy. Have a good night, everybody.